Romans 1. It's our fourth sermon in the book of Romans. And uh, we are going to uh, be in verses 18 through 23. It'd be really great if we uh, could just go all the way through the rest of the first chapter, because it's really all kind of one continuous thought. Uh, but that would make the sermon about two and a half hours long, and so we're not going to do that. Uh, today we're going to just try to take a bite here. Uh, we're going to try to get through 18 through 23, and I'm going to stop there, and then next week come back and kind of give the application. This is an incredibly helpful passage. I, it, it's, you have certain passages in the Bible that really serve as uh, foundational as far as what do we believe, how, how do we think about these things, how do we think about the Christian life, and this is indeed one of those passages. I use this passage a ton uh, just in counseling people in uh, talking through the gospel, talking about sin. And so it's, it's just a really helpful passage. I, I think you'll find it so. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into it today. We'll finish it up next week, uh, kind of living out the application or following out the application and cultural issues. Uh, next week will be kind of a hard sermon, kind of a controversial one, I think, just because of the, the cultural issues we'll deal with. Um, but that's next week. All right, Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 23. So I'm going to read this, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get started. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Father, I thank You for the Scriptures. I thank You for Your great gospel. Thank You, Jesus, for providing a way for us to have your righteousness, and never experience your wrath. Thank you, God, you're good. Lord, please make the gospel clear and sweet and beautiful to us today. God, I pray that you'd show us your character, your attributes, your glory. God, create in us a a hunger, a thirst for that. Father, be our teacher today. We need your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul begins this section by saying the wrath of God is revealed. Now, it's kind of a shame that, uh, that, that we couldn't have you know, last week's sermon and this week's sermon closer together because if we did, I, th- I think something would trigger in your mind. Okay, so verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is revealed. Verse 17, if you remember the verse right before this, the verse we ended with last week, it finished up by saying the righteousness of God is revealed. Okay, so you put these two together, you can tell Paul has a theme here. The righteousness of God is revealed, and then the wrath of God is revealed. All right, so what he's saying, is, if you remember from last week's sermon, is that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Now, if I can summarize that for you, okay, the only way that you and I become righteousness is by being joined in a faith relationship 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way we become righteous. You don't become righteous by me giving you a list. You know, hey, go bake some cookies for somebody. Number two, walk somebody across the street. Number three, give a little money to an orphanage. Number four, you don't get righteous that way, okay? Now, that is a way of living out practical righteousness after you've been saved, but that's not how you become right with Jesus Christ. The only way you become right with Jesus Christ is through the gospel, which is Jesus, God stepped out of the heavens into uh, into the earth through his son, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live and then died a substitutionary death in our place so that as you are joined to him, as you repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ, that he might give you his righteousness. So if you think of your account, I don't know if you ever think of this, you know, like you have an account, all right? You have a a bucket inside of you, okay? Uh, It's just filled up with sin. That's why we come into this world. You're bent the wrong way. Uh, You you, you are, you're, 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 you're un- unholy before God. You, you, you choose the wrong things. And so you have nothing but sin in your account. When you're joined to Jesus Christ, you get his righteousness. Okay? He takes your sin upon himself. He puts in your account his righteousness so that you are righteous in Jesus. All right. Now, verse 18 is telling us that that message is so crucial because the wrath of God is being revealed upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness. All right, now play this out in your mind. If the only means by which you being righteous, me being righteous, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, then without the gospel, we are unrighteous, which means the wrath of God is coming upon us. God's anger against sin, God's opposition, God's punishment of sin for all eternity is coming upon all those without the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, every time that you talk about the wrath of God, I believe that there are two natural responses, okay? So when, 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 when you begin to talk about that God is, is a God who will bring justice, who will pour out his wrath upon sin, upon sin, forever in a place called hell. I think there's two natural responses. Number one, no, 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 not God. That, that's not God. He wouldn't do that. And number two, no, 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 not me. I, I'm not one of those. That couldn't be me. I'm a good guy. I'm a good person. Me and God, we like the same baseball team. He would not do that to me. I think, I think those are the two responses, not God and not me. All right, now Paul does a masterful job in this section of helping us to, to kind of understand why God is going to do that and why that is us without the gospel. Unless you have the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is you who will be under the wrath of God. Now, let's try to unpack those. So first of all, Let's deal with with not God, okay? So why would God pour out his wrath upon sinners, upon the ungodly, upon the unrighteous? Why, Why will, why does God do that? Well, in order to understand that, for that to make sense in your mind, first of all, you have to understand that God is glorious, okay? God is not like us. God is holy. God is infinitely perfect in every way. Glorious means God's manifold perfections. In other words, in every category, the category of power, God maxes it out. The category of of holiness, God maxes it out. The category of purity, the category of justice, the category of righteousness, the category of, of beauty, the category of every category that is good and pleasing and awesome, God maxes that out. He is glorious in every way. Now, when you understand God's glory, then you see the necessity that there, there must be a punishment for an offense against that glory. Now, see, if you don't think that God is glorious, for instance, when, when, we don't, when, when we don't think that an offense has been made against someone or something that is not very virtuous, we're not very bothered. We're not very bothered if there's not a punishment. This week in the news, anybody see the, uh, 
the internet site for cheaters, basically, for uh, adulterers, adulteresses. If, in other words, if you want to commit adultery on your spouse, you'd go on this internet site, and you could sign up, and they would, like, pair you up with, you know, some, okay. Hackers got into that internet site, and they took the names and addresses of those people, and they posted them publicly. Okay, so what you have here is you have internet hackers who are breaking in illegally to a site, stealing information, publishing it publicly in order to harm people. But you know what? Everybody I talk to, you're giggling right now. People are giggling in the room that it happened. Now, now why? I just told you that there were thieves that broke in to a site, stole things, and put it out publicly in order to harm people, and you guys are snickering. Why are you snickering? You know why? Because... They weren't virtuous, right? I mean, that's why. They were trying to commit adultery on their spouses. And so there's almost a, hey, you know what? Let's give these guys a high five, not a punishment, right? I mean, that's that's where most of us would would agree. Okay, now what what if the same hackers had broken into school systems and sold information of grade school kids about their testing scores and their, uh, their, their punishments, what the teachers wrote about their academic ability, and put that online? You talk about some mad parents. You talk about some mad mamas, right? I mean, there would be our. Let's say that uh, the same hackers broke into soldiers coming back from Afghanistan, been fighting for our freedom. Hackers break into their personal accounts, put up their information, banking accounts, things that would harm them personally. We'd be outraged. What if it was orphan workers, you know, aid worker, workers, people working at orphanages, they broke in and put the, well, man, we'd be outraged. Now, why? The same offense. You know why? Because of the virtuousness of the one who is offended. My question to you, where does God, where does God stand in your mind in that, in that scale? Is he, is he right in there in, in, in the level of the adulterers? I, obviously not. Is, is, he, is, he, is he above or below the grade school kids? Have you been to children's church? You'd be able to answer that real quick, okay? How about soldiers fighting for our freedom? How about How about orphan aid workers? You know, where's God at? The answer to that is God is infinitely above. Is he not? I mean, that's the answer to that, right? God is infinitely above. So you have one who is infinitely glorious. And so what must be the response of sin and rebellion and offenses against that one? That is the wrath of God. Really, the question that we're, we're trying to ask here is, The question we're asking is, how should God respond to sin? How should God respond to evil? How does a righteous, holy, perfect, just, honorable God respond to evil and sin? Right? And so so kind of play this in your mind, okay? So uh, I think something everybody's probably familiar with would be the Holocaust Holocaust in in the 1940s, okay? So you have the, the Holocaust of the Jews by Nazi Germany, by Hitler, Okay, 6 million Jews rounded up and murdered. 1.5 million children okay, brought into concentration camps and systematically murdered. How does, how does a righteous person respond to the one responsible for that? Hitler. How does a righteous person respond to Hitler? Okay, now let's just go through the scale. Well, the guy that snickers over that, what would we say about him? You're a rotten scoundrel, right? You're not righteous at all. If that's your response to 6 million people getting murdered, 1.5 million children, okay? What about, what about the one who doesn't snicker, but he just says, that's ah, not my business? Well, he'd say, you're not very righteous. 
What, what about the one who, who doesn't snigger and says, it's not my business, but he sits Hitler down and he says, all right, listen, enough. Don't do that anymore. Now get on out of here. Do better. Is that guy righteous? Is that, well, he, he, he stood against it. Is that, is, that, is, that, is that sufficient? Is that a just judge? Is that a guy of righteousness and justice? What about, what about the guy that says, all right, Hitler, for killing six million Jews, you're going to do some community service. You got three months of going to the library on Fridays and help people with their taxes. Sufficient? Obviously, that's a little silly, right? Right? In order to be righteous, for us to consider you an honorable, righteous, just person, you have to respond to that evil with action, with appropriate justice, correct? We would demand that. Okay, so, so now what I'm asking is, how does a holy, a just, beyond what we can imagine as holy, how does that God respond to evil, to sin? And the answer to that is, God, God must hate sin. God must hate evil. God must act against it. God, God cannot brush evil under the rug. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And so God must pour out His wrath upon sin. That must happen because of who He is, because of His character. Now, 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 now let me back up because here's what I'm afraid. When I say God must pour out His wrath upon sin, I, I, I'm afraid whenever you think of wrath, here's the picture I think you have of your head. I think you have in your head the picture of a dad in a recliner with his, with his remote watching a ball game, and then the kids are fighting in front of him, you know, tearing stuff up, and the mom's yelling from the kitchen, you know, would you do something about that? Would you do something about that? You know, come on, do you not see what's going on? You know, and after about 10 minutes, he, the dude just snaps, you know? I mean, you know, like, like all of a sudden, just out of this, you know, remote goes flying, Cheetos go flying, recliner comes down, and he comes out of there, both sweat. I mean, just, all right, that's, that's what we think of when we think of wrath, right? We think of someone exploding in, in irritated anger. Is that God? Absolutely not. Now, does God oppose sin? Yes, he must. Does God act against sin? He has to, okay? But here's the story of the Bible. God is steadfastly patient. How many times in the Bible have you read, God is slow to anger? Oh, that's, that's everywhere. Slow to anger in that, in that God has held back his anger. He has held back his response to evil, his response to sin. He has held that back for millennia, thousands of years. God has been s- slow to anger. Now, it's, it's not that he's letting sin go by. It's not that he's not responding. Okay, but God has been so incredibly, unimaginably merciful and patient in giving opportunity, in coming himself, and providing a way that people not, not receive the wrath because of their sins. God has done all of that. So it's not this explosion of God's mad and out of control. No, it is, it is a settled conviction that God, because of his holiness and his righteousness, must punish evil, and he will do that. But he has given every opportunity for repentance and for salvation in the gospel. And so when Paul says, The wrath of God is revealed. He's accentuating what he told us last week, that the gospel is the means of the righteousness of God for salvation to avoid the wrath of God. 
When it says the wrath of God is being revealed, we see that as not just it's coming, but it's, it's already trickling in. Yeah? We, we see glimpses of it in the Bible with Noah and the flood, with Sodom and Gomorrah. All those are, are, are pictures of God saying, this will happen. I will judge sin. I will. The cross. Not only do you have Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah and, and, and your Old Testament history, but you have the cross. What is the cross, my friends? The cross is God's settled conviction that He will indeed pour out His wrath on sin. You have Jesus, the Lamb, the innocent one, the righteous one, praying in the garden, Father, if, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But it was not possible. It was necessary that Christ would go and that He would take upon Himself and bear the filth and the guilt of all those who would turn to Him. And God would pour His wrath out on Jesus. For those who say, and I hear this, God, God would not do that. I mean, I, I, just, I can't fathom that you would, you would logically, progressively think this way, that God poured His wrath out upon His own Son for your benefit, that you might escape His wrath, but then you think that he will not indeed judge sin for those who say, I don't want Jesus? The wrath of God is coming on all unrighteousness. Now, this next section, this is really where, where I want to get to. Okay, This is so helpful. The next section, Paul begins to describe to us the root of this sin. Okay, The root of this unrighteousness. I'm, I'm telling you, this is incredible. I used this this week, actually. Um, I was talking to a family about uh, that's kind of struggling through adultery. Um, and not from this town. But anyway, they're struggling through, trying to, trying to get through that, save their marriage. And one of the big questions whenever there's adultery is why. Um, but that's always, I find that happening over and over. Why, why? You know, everybody goes, you know, was I not good enough? Did I not dress nice enough? Are the kids not good enough? Or is our family not good enough? And, and I always come back and say, whoa, 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 you're going down way the wrong track here. Let's get a theological picture of sin here, okay? And once we get a theological picture of what sin is and what sin does, then that helps us process through this, okay? And so this is really helpful because basically, I'll just tell you what this is going to say and then we'll work through it. What, what this says is, is that the root of sin is that the, the sinner, that when sin is inside of a person, what it does is it causes them to reject the glorious, to turn away from the greatness, the goodness, the beauty, and turn to the lesser. That's what sin does. And that's very evident in this passage. Okay, so let's look at this together. So verse 18, the wrath of God is, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, and what we're going to see here is, is the truth that sin suppresses is that God is infinitely good and beautiful and glorious and, and everything that we need. That, that's the truth that's being suppressed here. And so verse 19 starts out by saying this, what can be known about God is plain to them, them being mankind. All right, so Paul is telling us here that, that, that there are things about God that can be known whether you've ever been to a church, whether you've ever picked up a Bible, whether anybody's ever told you anything about Jesus, about Abraham, about Moses, about any of the stories in the Bible. If you simply live on this planet, there are things about God that you already know. That's what Paul's saying. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For, verse 20, follow me here, verse 20, for his invisible attributes, okay? So, so things about God, his attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Okay, so in other words, you walk outside, you look at another human being, you, you know things about God. All right, just, just from, nat- it's called natural revelation. And Paul finishes that section in verse 20 by saying, so they are without excuse. Okay, now what Paul is telling us here is that God has clearly revealed certain things about himself in creation. His fingerprints are everywhere throughout the universe, the solar system, the rotation of the planets, the diverse ecosystem, the human body, the animal kingdom, the fruitfulness of the earth, the human brain, the giant sequoias, the coral reefs, the fields of grain. God has left his undeniable mark everywhere you look. And what Paul is saying is, We've all responded wrongly to that already, okay? So, I would be guilty. Let me give you an illustration first, okay? Let's say I'm in Washington, D.C., and I lead my kids up to the Lincoln Memorial. We've done this before. And so, we're there standing before the huge Lincoln Memorial, all these marble pillars with this huge pavilion and, and this enormous statue of Abraham Lincoln in there. And what if I turn around to my kids and I'm like, guys, is it not? incredibly phenomenal that like a volcano exploded and blew all this pile of marble right here and it all made this shape, you know? I mean, I mean, isn't, isn't that incredible? All right, now, I'm not, I've never claimed that my kids are rocket scientists or anything, but I guarantee you all five of them would immediately know, Dad, that's a dumb thing to say, okay? I mean, Dad, somebody made this. Somebody brought this in. There's a craftsman. There's an artistry. There, there, there is a creator who shaped and formed this. Okay? And we would know somebody put this here. All right? That, that's, that is evident. It's evident. In the same way, when man looks at an infinitely complex human body. Let's just take the human body. You look at another person, all right? All these systems running seamlessly, healing itself with diseases and damage. A heart. Man, I tell you, the heart is amazing. Have you ever thought about this? Without stopping one time, without resting 30 seconds, without an oil change, without a new battery, without new spark plugs, without any kind of service or maintenance, a heart can beat for 2.5 billion times in a row without stopping in the average life. That's just the average lifespan of a person. You told me that's an accident? To look at that and say, wow, freak accident. I made myself. You know, I'm here out of me. No one owns me. There's no creator. I did this. I made that machine. I can't get my air conditioner to work for more than 30 days, but I made this heart to be 2.5 billion times without resting seamlessly. You see, Paul is pressing home the point that as you, as you look around creation, there are things you know about God. And there are things we know about God, we know about His attributes, we know about who He is, and we've all responded wrongly. You know, if I'm hiking in Colorado, this, this happens a lot. We'll go hiking, and we don't really know where we're going, you know? We just like, hey, here's a trail, let's take off on it. You know, so we'll take off on a trail. If I had taken off on a trail, and all of a sudden I come over kind of a little hill, and, and, and man, I, I step right into this courtyard of this enormous castle with these guard towers on all sides, right? I mean, you know, my, my first thought, After, wow, that's unexpected. Okay, my second thought, you know what my second thought is? Are we supposed to be here? Right? Like, am am I trespassing? Are we going to get shot? You know, 
have, have, do you have to pay a price? Is this, is this private land? Did we make a big mistake here? I mean, that would be my natural response. I mean, I'm hiking on this trail in the wilderness, and all of a sudden I come upon something that clearly belongs to something else, somebody else. That would be my response. What, what, what do do I have here? Right? Well, Paul is saying, man, you walk out, to, everywhere you look, what ought you to be thinking? This belongs to somebody else, right? I did not make this. I did not create this. This belongs to somebody else. And so what do do I have to the creator? Listen now, Paul talks with uh, the men of Athens. These, these are not Christian guys. These are not Jewish people. These are not people with the Bible. And, and here's what he says to them in Acts 17. He says, the God who, this is verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by, by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself, listen to this, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of times and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. You see what he's saying? He's saying all men everywhere, they know that there's a God who gives them life and breath, and it's your responsibility to seek him. And, and, and as, as we open up the scriptures, okay, so, so that's natural revelation in which everybody on the planet has, but then everybody in this room, man, you've, you, you're up a notch. You have special revelation. You, you have the, the, the benefit of the scriptures and having this glorious plan of God laid out for you. The thousands of years in which God has culminated his rescue plan in sending his own son to die for your sins, to pay the penalty, to give you his righteousness. Okay, and, and the Bible says we've rejected that. That's our guilt. We're on the hook for that. Paul is saying ungodliness and unrighteousness is a natural inclination to reject the truth about God that we see wherever we see it. That's sin. You understand that? So sin is, is this natural inclination that whether we, we, we know there's a God by looking at creation, whether we know there's a God by the scriptures, our natural sinful inclination is not to be interested in that. Not to seek him, not to honor him, not to thank him, not to love him, not to pursue him, not to want him. It's a natural inclination. That's our sin nature. It's almost like if we were to go and gather up the two-year-old boys in our church, bring them up here on the stage, I would have a little bag with me. I'd say, all right, boys, I'm going to put some toys out, some things, I'm going to put some things out for you to play with. You can pick whatever you want. Pull out a ball, pull out a truck, pull out a rattle, pull out a book. Okay, and then pull out a power tool with an electric cord with all kinds of sharp things on it. What are they all going to go to? And there's something in them that says, that could kill me, I want it, right? In the same way, okay, what Paul is telling you here is that your broken sin nature runs after things that will kill you. You run after things that are not God. That's a sinful nature. That's what it is that we have a deep unrighteousness within us that rejects God in favor of other things.
many people struggle with, well, what if, what if you have somebody who's never heard the gospel? That's something to struggle with. I'll talk about that in a minute, our church's responsibility there, but, but let's unpack what Paul says here. First of all, what does he say? He ends up in verse 20 by saying, they are without excuse. Now, why are they without excuse? Well, it's like if you have an instruction manual, okay? You have an instruction manual. Step one, take all the red pieces out. Those are the ones you're going to use. And so the person takes all the red pieces, throws them away, and gets all the black pieces out. Does it matter if they read the rest of the book? What if, what if they've never read step two, three, four? Well, it really does, I mean, they've already rejected what they know, correct? Okay, and so, so Paul is saying, all right, all mankind is guilty because we've all rejected the knowledge of God that we've been given. So I kinda, I kinda, if you think of it as light, the reason I think of it that way is because John 3 actually describes God's revelation is light, okay? So if you think of it as light, okay? So everybody's in a dark room, okay? So the folks over in Papua New Guinea, the folks over in, uh, in Baghdad or Tehran, maybe never heard the gospel, never heard the name of Jesus, never heard about Moses or, or Abraham or, or Noah, or the story of God's redemption. All they have is a flashlight, okay? So they're in a dark room, but there's a flashlight up there. And it, it's shining, and that flashlight is natural revelation. It's creation all around them. And then... Others, they have more than a flashlight. Maybe they have, maybe the Jewish people, they, they have the Old Testament. That's like a floodlight, okay? Describing the character of God and, and, and the law and then the guilt for sin. Okay, but you and I, man, we, we're stepping into the noonday sun of the gospel, all right? Now, let me just tell you this. If you're in the noonday sun, your guilt is going to be worse than the guy with the, that's just in the flashlight, Okay? No matter how wicked you think that guy is, if you reject Jesus, your judgment in hell will be worse than his. Because you rejected the noonday sun and all he had was the fly sight. But either way, you're guilty. Does that make sense? That's a big question that people ask. Okay, and Paul answers it here. They're without excuse. Okay, but here, here's the next question then. People will ask, well, if a man is fully guilty for rejecting the light of creation, the flashlight, but he can't be saved unless he unless he sees the gospel, well, man, how does that work? What, what, if, what if he never gets the gospel? My friends, that is why we have a mission program. That is why it's on us. That's why Paul spent chapter 1 saying, man, I'm set apart for the gospel. The gospel is the story. I'm eager to go to Rome. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I can't wait to preach the gospel. I got to get to where the gospel hasn't been. That's why we have a missions program. That's why we're trying to build 20 huts in the next two, two months in rural India to plant churches, to send guys there with the gospel, to talk to people who all they've had is a flashlight. We want the noonday sun to rise in India. That's why we partnered with, with, in Romania to the gypsies this last week. That's why we hope to spend more than $300,000 at the end of this year pushing the gospel to the end of the earth. And the question then becomes, well, what if we don't get there, Pastor? I think that question is best answered by not answering it. Yeah, what if we don't get there? That's a, that's a sober thought. That ought to twist us up a little. What if we don't get there? 
Now, sometimes the, the thrust of that question is, what if someone who's, who's seen the, the light of natural revelation and God begins to stir in their hearts and move in them and they begin to do what Acts 17 says, they begin to seek God. What if, what if you and I aren't there? What if we've not sent somebody? Well, I, I think God will use us. I think he'll... Man, next time Kylan Kirkendall is here, you ask him stories about how they have Muslims coming to them one after the other, who've, who've seen Jesus in a dream or a vision. You know, whenever, whenever someone tells me they have a dream or a vision in America, I'm, I'm like, a little bit, I mean, I'm, God can do whatever he wants, but I'm a little skeptical. You know, I'm like, what'd you have for supper that night? You know, <laughs> whenever someone in North Africa, when I hear about them having a dream about Jesus, I'm like, yep, yep. That's, that's just what God does, right? He'll, he'll get them, he'll bring them the gospel through someone being obedient, through sending Kylan over there. So there's somebody there funding the ministry. That's the mission of the gospel to the world. All right, we got to go quickly here because we're not to the best part yet. I should just do the best part first. But see, you have to see the progression is why we don't do that, right? Or maybe I'm just doing it wrong. I don't know. For his invi- verse, verse 20, for his invisible attributes, name is eternal power, divine nature, been clearly perceived. For verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, let's just skip right to, right to where I want to go. Verse 23, okay? Um, so, so ah, yeah, 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 let's skip. Okay, um, let's skip right to verse 23, okay? Here it goes. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. All right, this is the heart of, of sin. This is the root of sin. All right, so let's deal with those words quickly. Verse, the first word, exchanged, okay? So what's mankind done? They've exchanged the glory of the immortal God. You know what the word exchange means? It means to substitute, to trade, right? You get something for Christmas. It doesn't fit, you know? You were an extra large, and Aunt Bertha got you a medium, right? And so it's not going to work, right? Or it's just really ugly, and you don't want it, or whatever reason, Okay? And so what do you do? If possible, you take it to the store and you're like, I don't want this. I want something else. That's what it means to exchange something. And so Paul is saying the root of sin is that we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God. All right, what is the glory of the immortal God? Well, we've already talked about that. What is the glory of God? It's that in power, God maxes out the chart. In satisfaction, in being able to satisfy your soul, in being able to give you joy, God maxes out the chart. In being beautiful and lovely and gracious and merciful, God maxes out the chart, okay? God is everything that you need. That's his glory. He, he is the glory of the immortal God. What's the word immortal means? It means it doesn't decay. It doesn't fade. It doesn't wear out. It's just as good a million years from now and better than it is today, okay? And so we have the glory of the immortal God, and what is mankind doing? Mankind is exchanging that, trading substituting. I don't want it. I'm not interested. Man, don't, don't tell me you can't identify with that. Man, I remember distinctly being a, a 15, 16 years old, hearing the gospel clearly, clearly. Man, I, I was in the noonday sun hearing that Jesus Christ would take away my sins and would give me His righteousness and would change my heart. And I remember 
not being interested. That's boring. Man, what I'm interested in is new tires on my car. That's exciting. What I'm interested in is that blonde in chemistry. Then that's what I want. That is what will satisfy my soul. That's what will fix me. What I'm interested in is changing jobs to a different feed yard so that I can get $5 an hour instead of $4 an hour. That's what I'm interested in. I mean, really, like I remember, not interested at all. What, what was happening there? Sin inside of me, living out what sin does. I'm, I'm trading, I'm exchanging. I don't want, I'm not interested in God. Look at it again, verse 23. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for what? For what? What, what, what would we rather have? For images resembling, notice, we'll stop right here, mortal man. No thanks. I, I'm not interested in the, in the glorious, immortal God who could satisfy my soul and take away my sin. What am I rather interested in? Me. Or somebody like me. Here's the nature of sin. Here it is in a nutshell. The nature of sin says, I don't want God, I want a mirror. I don't want God, I want a mirror. I, I, I want pats on the back. I want the affirmation of men. I, I, want, I want power over others. I, I want be, the beauty of women. I, 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 I'm not interested in the glory of God. No, no, no. I'm interested in me. I want to be God. I want to be my own God. Friends, as you begin to live out your Christian life, this is incredibly helpful. You know what's so helpful about this to me is that, that okay, my eyes have been opened to see God's glory, okay? The, 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 the young man I was describing to you just a minute ago, okay, man, fortunately, God, God showed me himself and I turned away from sin. I said, no, Jesus, you're the best thing. I want you more than all. God, I, I, you're my only hope for salvation. You're my only hope for righteousness. You're my hope for life. I want you, okay? That happened in my life. But you know what? That old sin nature is still in me, and I, and I have to remind myself. I have to speak it. Man, this, this is why we sing. Some of you may be coming to church, and you're like, what, why, why did we just sing, you know? And in your mind, you're like, well, it's kind of like school. You know, you have PE, you got English, you got math, and you got music, you know? And if you're not one of those people that sing wells, well, you just go and kind of fake it, you know, or you just try not to be sing. That's not why we sing. It, it really isn't. The reason we sing is because there is a necessity in us to express that God is glorious. I mean, there, 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 there's a necessity in us to speak that God is infinitely satisfying. We want to tell what He's done. We want to say what He's done. We want to, we want to proclaim it. We want to sing it. We want to shout it. We, we have to remind ourselves. This is why we need the Scriptures. This is why we got to continually come into the Scriptures, because I need to come to the Scriptures and remind myself, this is who God is. Because all these things come at us, don't they, in the world? And we're so tempted to do just what sin nature does and say, no, I'm not interested in God. This will satisfy me. This shiny thing. This is what will make me happy. Or being this person or the mirror looking a certain way or having the affirmation of a certain person. No. We, we are people who must continually rebuke 
the nature in us to think that other things are better than God, that other things are more worth it than God. But Paul's point is true. We've all rejected. Which leaves us all in need of the gospel. All in need, every one of us, of seeing Christ's glory and responding to it in faith. Having our eyes and minds opened to what Christ has done, what He will do forevermore. We need Him. Next week, we'll see how this plays out in some sins, uh, some cultural things that are very relevant. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask you for grace. Uh, Grace to see your glory. Grace to see your magnificence, your splendor, your brilliance. God, we we pray that as we open our, our Bibles this week, God, that you would show us your glory. We pray, Father, that as we have Christ in our conversation in our families, that you would show us your glory. We pray, Father, that as we drive to work and we look at, at a sunrise or a sunset or a, uh, a hawk in the sky or a, a lake or a, a baby, Father, that we would, we would see your handiwork, your fingerprints, your glory everywhere. And God, that we would respond to it by seeking you as our owner and our, as our king, as our master, our savior, as the one who is life. Father, help us. Show us your glory. 